Tina Brown's got your cover, sis. She can show you another way. Tune in weekly to your radio, and she'll have it feeling like. Welcome to Walking Through Glass, the podcast. The podcast where you are invited to ear hustle on an intimate conversation between real women as they discuss their journey, joys, and diva hacks. I am your host, Dr. Dina C. Brown, executive coach, international best-selling author, and bold woman walking through glass every day. Walking Through Glass is about the struggle we face on our journey, which I describe as walking through glass. Our conscious conversations are all about real talk with real women that are doing their best to navigate fear, anxiety, depression, imposter syndrome, limited beliefs, negative self-talk, and other BS, you know, belief systems. Welcome to the show. And I'm excited to have <laughs> Ashley Oaken here with the special series, Race Class and Sisterhood. This series is literally taking a life of its own. And it's such an honor and such a, a pleasure. And I just have to give you this little tidbit about Ashley because I actually want to share this part of her bio. Ashley Oaken, what she says about herself, I love it. I'm a journalist with big hair and a kind heart, forever wanting the Mets to win a World Series and thinking that MGK won the feud with Eminem. How cool is that? (laughs) So cool. So welcome to the show, Ashley. So happy to have you here. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. And I know you got a lot to say, and I'm like, okay, there's a lot happening. There's a lot happening in perspective to not just with, you know, pre-post, you know, COVID pandemic, as well as what I call a cultural pandemic. And I have my own thoughts too about the whole, some of the, what I call the root of it all and, you know, the burgeoning consciousness (laughs) that's And then also the masking, which really concerns me a little bit more so than the outright bigotry. But I know that you have some amazing thoughts, but also you might want to share with our listeners a little bit more about you. And so we can get to know you as you give us all the tea. (laughs) So what are you going to tell us, Ashley? (laughs) So much. Black Lives Matter has been on my mind a lot this week, 
the week before, the week before that. Um, there's been a lot going on, and it's been hard to absorb some days. You know, some days I have cried on and off. Some days I feel sort of numb about it. And writing my articles has been a way of protesting <laughs> against all the bigotry that's been going on without having to actually go out and protest on my own. We all have a space and what I've shared, not only on the show, but also in offline in my conversations with, you know, corporate leadership and also guesting on other shows and doing private workshops is that we all have a space and we have to find that space and we have to operate there in our, in the, with the authenticity that really gives it credit where credit is due as opposed to jumping out and being someone we're not, because how do we continue to do something that's not really aligned to our authentic truth? And so it's actually been on my mind. There's been lots of conversations to the point also that some days I'm just like today, I feel like I'm on a break. Like I'm on a break today. I cannot be the resident black expert today. And that's my term a phrase I've coined for black expert. It's just like today <laughs> I I have to give some self-care, some mental, um, just think about my own mental health and wellness, but yet there's still so much to be said. And I have to think before I speak because the out and out real ignorance I've been getting to see globally and Here's the spoiler alert. It's white, black, it's everybody. It's not even just one group and it's not just like white allies. Some of the things that I'm also hearing and seeing that people who call themselves pro-black without having any awareness or context of what they're talking about and they're repeating and sharing things that are so far from the truth that it doesn't lend itself to the matter at hand, which breaking down the system and <laughs> dealing with the core issues. So what's like, what has been on your mind? I am so glad you brought that up <laughs> because that resident black spurt <laughs> point you made has been so evident in my life recently. A lot of people I had known in high school have been messaging me about how they could be a better ally as a white person, how they could be nicer to their black friends now that they're upset about all of this. And it's not about being nicer to your black friends. It's about calling out the ignorance, frankly, of your white friends, you know, so your black friends don't have to deal with that at all. Right. Um, I've also been seeing this thing about respectability politics in that there are some black people who seem to believe that if you have a PhD, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, if you have some other sort of job title that garners some sort of societal respect, you're not going to be stopped by the police, killed by the police, or otherwise harassed. And that's not true either, because they don't care about what you're doing outside of, you know, the car that they're stopping you in. All they see you as is a black person, <laughs> you know? And I think that's something that we really have to 
absorb. I mean, it's very hard to absorb that no matter what you do, that's all you're seen as. But I feel like if you don't acknowledge where these people are truly coming from, you're not going to really be able to speak to how we could get past that, you know? I have a question for you. And as I was thinking, because I, I love your articles, you know, whether it's the 10 songs to help you understand the Black Lives Matter movement. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, like you have so many great ideas. And I know the questions come up a lot of what do I do? How do I help? How do I lean in? And there seems to be two separate factions out there. Some people saying things like, you need to go figure it out for yourself because I'm dealing with my own trauma being black in America. And then there's the other, maybe there's three. Then there's the other saying, let me go and educate and provide as many resources as I possibly can, you know, to make sure that people have the tools that they need so that they can, you know, have conscious conversations. And then there's probably people like me who are in the middle of both. <laughs> because I do enjoy, because I'm a teacher. See, part of it is, I'm a teacher. I do like teaching context for the conversation. But I don't want to own the responsibility and accountability of people becoming aware. But then on the other hand, I feel like I'm going to catch 22 with, I feel like, well, then where they're going out there and then it's not even like the miseducation of the Negro, it's the miseducation of white folks because some of the stuff they're going to go get is like, oh no, no, not that. That's not, <laughs> that's not going to help you as an, as a journalist, where do you stand? Such a great question. Um, personally, I, agree with your point of being in the middle of both in that I try to humbly educate people on exactly where they could learn more about the oppression of black people, the prison industrial complex, um, the uh, sixth leading cause of death for young black men being um, killed by the police, something I had found out about recently, by the way. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's a matter of steering people to the right things. <laughs> like you said, um, it's about doing what you feel like you can do without overextending yourself. Like, I feel like a lot of people have been getting into this space where, they're so focused on educating people, which is great, but you have to take care of yourself too. And I think a lot of us are forgetting about that. I certainly have in the midst of all this. Um, the best thing people can do to me is just educate themselves without burdening their black friends to sort of tell them everything that's going on. Um, so you could read books about mass incarceration and watch Fruitvale Station. And when they see us, that's a great, you know, film, by the way, very sad though. Um, 
there, there's so much art and media out there. Okay, so I'm gonna stop. That's part of my challenge right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's a matter of perspective and context, and 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 I say this, and I say it, and my conscience is free and clear in saying it. If someone takes it out of pocket, know that that's not really what it is. And if, you know, if you do get offended, then please, you know, let me know. And I can probably provide more, more body to it. But I feel like they're going and they're exploring and looking at black media or art in movies and films. And as a historian, some of them are not contextually accurate. And so it's like leading the lamb to slaughter and so they're going and they're not still getting a good understanding of the why <laughs> and the body to it. And yet then they take it on, they watch it, and then it becomes the, the new truth. And it's just as much a big of a lie as the textbook, you know, and the ink and the pages that we put into our schools and we educate our children with that are empty of really the truth of the struggle and the system and the institution itself, because if they Google without guidance, it's kind of like what I was doing earlier. And I became, I call it my Google MD. And by the time I was done, I had like five different elements and I was writing out my will. I feel like that there's, and this may be the educator in me, but that part is what concerns me the most is that there's people that the, the material that they are getting is not real material to help them with their awareness. It might be an example of our art, but it's almost like giving the baby the piece of pork chop before that it, and it has no teeth instead of giving it the applesauce. Mm -hmm. And so I just feel like their digestive system <laughs> is not there. And so they're not, they're going to get indigestion. Yeah. I just made a whole whatever. <laughs> <laughs> But that's kind of how I've been feeling because people say, go watch this, go watch that movie, go with that. And again, as a person who loves the art of teaching context, I'm thinking that movie's not really even accurate in historical telling. There's more fiction in that than fact as far as relatability. And then people who don't know, black and white, they'll take that and say, well, here's the truth because I saw this movie. <laughs> I read that, you know, piece of fiction and then they count it as truth. And so I guess I'm just in this space right now going, I'm tired. Like, oh my gosh, do I have to fight the war of, you know, building context? I guess I, I say context a lot because I think if people have better context, they could have better conversations and it'll increase their consciousness when they're trying to collaborate as an ally, as opposed to you know, like you said, Fruit Bout, that is a great movie. You know, that's a great movie. But what if they would have went and watched Black Caesar? Right. You see what I mean? And yeah. I'm not saying they did, but it's it's like, <laughs> what shows crime? It's, it's like, I feel like I'm tired sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I agree. I'm tired too, girl. <laughs> I'm tired too. <laughs> I'm tired. Even my mom. I love the point you made about how history that's taught in schools is so just steeped in white supremacy because it is. I mean, there are so many things I 
have learned this year of my life <laughs> that I should have known in at least high school, my junior high school. For instance, um, Juneteenth has, you know, come up. And we're all about making this a federal holiday, which is great. The more holidays, the better. <laughs> One. But two, I don't think people really understand that just because we have, we're going to now have a federal holiday that's celebrating slavery ending two years too late. Okay, don't get me started because you know I'm 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 listening, but don't get me started. (laughs) But we're not out of the slavery we're in now. You know, like the oppression is still going on. Like they're just giving us piecemeal things, little tidbits. Like we're naming this street Black Lives Matter Way. We're taking away um, this racist um, label on the syrup, which is great because that has a very problematic history that should have been dealt with a long time ago. I'm not saying that's not, you know, a good thing, but they're not addressing the root causes of why people are protesting because unarmed black people are killed by the police at a ridiculously high rate for no other reason other than they're living while black. (laughs) And I don't think people are really focusing on that, especially when it comes to trans women who are black. There's a lot of honestly um just boneheaded (laughs) things to put it like a nice way i've been seeing that are floating around about that you know that i'm glad that you know a couple of things that you said just jumped out at me and i and i want to hit a couple the first piece is about our history. And as a American history teacher, I didn't teach from my textbook. I taught from firsthand documents and I actually taught with additional resources and we use the, the textbook as an anchor many days to, (laughs) 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 as as we use it as a reference book, as opposed to a main study. That's the way to do it. (laughs) And we did inquiry based. I did an inquiry based study. And I remember one year I taught history in reverse and I taught it in reverse as an inquiry base. So here's what happened in reconstruction. How do we get there? How do we get there? So then we rolled it all the way back. And again, my students who were eighth graders at the time were like, oh my gosh, I bet you now they're like, she taught us that. Boom. She taught us that, you know, that's go- the things that you're mentioning. And, but I caught some flack for that. Yeah of actually teaching. And I mean, when I say I taught every history, not just black history, when I taught, I did a a unique unit and I called the unit, the Holocaust in all caps, because the Holocaust is the destruction of a people. And so what I actually had students do for perspective, they did a compare and contrast between the Holocaust of Jewish people, the Holocaust of Native Americans and the Holocaust of Africans. Yeah. I had them do that as eighth graders. People were like, <laughs> my kids were like, your class is harder than my college class. You know, they're all grown now. But I wanted them to have a broader perspective and ask why questions. And they asked why questions and they went to go look for the answers and supporting details. And they could make statements. You just had to have your supporting documentation and your statements to support what you were going to say. Um, and, and I think about 
how that's what I loved, but it was also a frustrating point because I always had one or two of those parents that didn't like it because I wasn't teaching, you know, to the text and I wasn't, you know, I was broadening and I was teaching again, when we talked about, you know, really Mexican people in the Americas, you know, and we taught it from the perspective, you know, so there, there's, like I said, there was a lot to do with that. And so I had a question recently. I said, well, where do you think we should start? We have to start with one of the largest institutions that perpetuate these stereotypes and that's education. Number one, because <laughs> with knowledge really becomes the power to have some conversations. And if you can start dealing with our children, because it's a learn, racism is learned. I mean, you have to unlearn it, but how about we start in the very beginning <laughs> with how we're teaching? And now I will add a caveat. The first teachers come from home. Yeah. So there's that part. But as far as going to school and really letting other children begin to see themselves and, and have hope and, and see the beauty in the richness, because it's not Chicana history. It's not Native American history month. It's not black history month. It's American history. And stuff to, you know, to do that. And the fact that we have to identify Women's History Month and se separate these out inherently lies the issue that we do do that as opposed to, yay, we're doing it. You don't see anything wrong with this. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but you don't see the reason that let's talk, like you said, the root. Why do we have to do this? And that's, and that's been kind of buzzing around in my head. And then the other portion that you were saying, I mean, there was so many like good pieces to that was that when we're talking about looking across at all black lives and the intersectionality between gender, race, sectionality, socioeconomic status. So if you are a black trans woman who may be socio socioeconomically oppressed, well, you got three touch points. I mean, and you're persecuted far more than. And I had that conversation with someone recently is that there, there's so many different, like I said, there's so many different things that some days, and I'll be honest with you, I just like, okay, Supergirl, take off your cape and have a cupcake because... <laughs> <laughs> live to fight another day. Do you, as a journalist, do you find that there's so many great stories to tell? Do you get overwhelmed with trying to tell them all? Oh, for sure. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I always love to find stories like that, that tell the history of a people that really put a spotlight on what you said, how identities are so intersectional and how all those intersections can impact people so differently. And there are so many stories that highlight those exact points. And I don't feel like I have the time to tell them all. And it's very, <laughs> it's very frustrating because I very much want to, I very much want to give everybody the spotlight that they deserve because I feel like that's what a journalist is supposed to do in part. Um, and How'd you get into journalism? I've wanted to ask you that. Um, in college, I had taken an intro journalism class my sophomore year. And I don't know 
what it was, but that class made me fall in love with the entire field just because I love the idea of one, I just love meeting new people. <laughs> like I just love talking to people and getting to know them. Um, and I also just love the idea of using the power of words to inform others of somebody's experience and maybe have them learn something from reading that piece. Uh, obviously, reading texts isn't the only way to inform yourself of how the world works, but it's been a big part of how I've personally done things. <laughs> so I just love doing something that sort of builds upon that love I have for words and informing people of how others live, you know, maybe aren't like them. That's, I mean, and I say that because when I look at your, the stories that you've been writing lately, it's like, wow, I wonder, like, was there a catalyst? And, and now are you finding your voice more because you're ignited by a passion of the Black Lives Matter movement and other social justice topics? I definitely feel like I am, actually. Um, it's just made me much more vocal about having to stand up against, you know, police brutality and racism and everything. Like, I've always believed in doing that, but I feel like writing has given me the the power to do that that I didn't really have earlier in life just because I've always been a very, like, shy, reserved, meek person. Um, and writing has given me a sort of strength I didn't know I had, if that makes sense. No, I love that. <laughs> now, it's interesting that um, that you said that the writing, like, it kind of, you, like, transform. I had the question recently, and I'm going to ask you mm -hmm. the question. What was it about Joy, George Floyd's travesty that, why do you think that ignited the world the way that it did? Oh, that's, um, just your thoughts about what, yeah, just your thoughts. Okay. About what was it about, because it obviously, it sounds like it triggered something in you. And I, and this is not the first time, as we know, I tell people I've been black for 48 years. Right. This ain't my first rodeo, but there was something about this that changed the game for me. Did you have that kind of? Yeah, I did. Um, as somebody who's been black for nearly 28 on Thursday. <laughs> um, I just, I think it's something that all black people have felt, but it's something that just pushed me further in that. George Floyd's murder, let's just call it what it is. Yeah, his murder. Was enough. <laughs> like it was it was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Um, especially because of this man kneeling on his neck for nine minutes and he's telling this man I can't breathe and he doesn't he doesn't care. He's just like, whatever, 
there's this black guy underneath me and that's all he's going to be to me. And, you know, I don't care about his life. And it's just, it was just so awful to me that somebody who's supposed to, you know, quote unquote, serve and protect is doing anything but that all because this man supposedly has to counterfeit $20 bill when he was buying something. Like, that's the thing I don't, I, I can't wrap my mind around either sometimes of there are such different consequences for not just black men, but black people when they do anything as opposed to white people. It's been, it's always been really infuriating for a million reasons, but, but um, with George Floyd's case in particular, it, it just was enough, you know, for me, it was, I, I hope he is, I hate to say one of, because this is still going on, but um, one of the last Black men who has to suffer like that. Mm. Yeah. I, I, when I was sharing it on, um, when I was sharing it with, on the interview that I was doing for More in Common, and I said, I felt like, I haven't finished grieving Emmett Till. <laughs> Again, like I said, as a historian as well in this game. And it was triggered. And one of my favorite movies is Mississippi Burning. I don't know if you've seen it. But if you haven't, definitely worth watching. Now, as a mom, I was triggered on multiple levels with George Floyd. But as I was sharing with colleagues and I've shared over and over again, and I'm going to share it again. When I watched the video and I don't watch it anymore. I think I've only watched it once or twice. I think I watched it twice. To see the look in his eyes that I can stand here in broad daylight with people videotaping me with my boys with me watching me. I can murder this man and no one's going to touch me. That was all over his demeanor and his face and his hands being in his pockets the way they were mm -hmm. sent me over the, it was like, I have zero value for his life or black life period. Why? Cause I don't have to, it was that message subliminal, however you want to call it that hit me. And like you said, I just said, enough's enough. And I'm like, that could be my son. Mm -hmm. That could be my son. George was built a lot like, you know, my son. That could be my son. And I was so tired internally. So tired of, and I was triggered about all the nights where I couldn't sleep because my son was out in one of the safest cities in America. But yet he could still be hunted down like an animal in one of the safest cities of America. And it wouldn't even create a blip on their safety map. It was all of that that caused me to be triggered. And I just said, you know, I can talk about it or I could be about it. What am I going to do? I didn't think about what are other people are going to do. It was like, what am I going to do differently? in my life to be pro 
And I like what um, I had a guest on Nicole. Was it Nicole Good? And she said, it's not about being anti-racist. It's really about even being pro-black, being pro-yourself. Because you're going to have to do that before you can be anti-racist. Especially when we're talking about black people. Know who you are. Know your story. Know your history. Which kind of brings me back to my earlier point. I've had lots of conversations with people of color across the board. Not only black people, but other people of color. And they have zero context of their history. The history of their people. Mm-hmm. their cultural dynamicism, mm-hmm. including my mom who called me and said, Dina, I know you're going to offer this class on context um, for conversation. She said, can you send me a link? Cause I need to take it. Cause I don't know this stuff. Right. Yeah. And just goes back to my point of, again, history being so steeped in whiteness that whatever history that people of color and black people have is just totally wiped out. And I mean, I may need to take your class too, because there's a lot. It's going to <laughs> it's, uh, be out there and it's complimentary. There's three sessions. There's three, it's a series and it'll, it'll be a complimentary series. Cause I want to really, this is my value add to the movement. And, um, and so I want to break down the context, like I said, for conversations and give people, you know, a deep dive mm-hmm. in a helicopter over some history stuff to where to start to kind of get them jarring their understanding. I used to teach this stuff. And so I have a different context. And so when I look at the institution as a whole, I see it because I also worked within the system. Um, I was oppressed within the system Mm -hmm. and I became depressed in a result of working in that system. Um, so I know it. I see what happens to, I saw what happened to children. I saw what happened to other black teachers and educators and why we're not in certain um, schools and why we're not in certain subject areas in teaching, why we don't um, hold certain administrative and leadership positions and superintendencies and boards. I, I, I get it. You oh, know, yeah, there is a lot of, there is a, there's probably a book one day. Cause who Jesus, it was such a, it was such a, it was such a piece. I would but, read it. But um, to your point of how the education system just fails black children, um, I've had my own experiences with that just because of I had a third grade teacher, Miss Missina, I will never forget her name. Um, she had this idea I was stupid. <laughs> wow. And it didn't matter what I did. It was always, I was going to be this dumb black girl in the class. I was the only one in there who was a biracial black girl. And um, English has always been my best subject, (laughs) Um, even back then. And I remember I had always done well on spelling tests, right? So I did well on this particular one, too. And she just flat out accused me of cheating because... I couldn't possibly have gotten that mark on my own. You know, I couldn't have been that smart. And I was a pretty goody two shoes <laughs> child. Like I was always very much like a rule follower. I had never cheated on anything in my entire life. And that was just so defeatist to me. 
you know, of like, well, if this person thinks I'm dumb, well, I guess I'm dumb. And, you know, it's very hard to overcome that. And I feel like a lot of black children are sort of put through that same ringer if there is at least one teacher who's like, this kid's stupid because they're black. And it's awful. I I think, too, that the educational system didn't just fail black children, Hispanic children, Native American children, mm-hmm. but it failed white children. Yeah. It failed them because it did not provide them an accurate reflection of the people that they went to school with. No. And it actually fed into the ideology of white supremacy. Oh, sure. Like, I, yeah. I have went to predominantly white schools for a lot of my life. And I've definitely seen that play out of the white supremacist education everybody's getting. It sort of feeds into that idea playing out in life with these white kids and the black kids who go to school with you. They, the white kids hold on to this superiority complex they think they have, you know? Because that's all they're they're told about, you know. Right, white people are conquering everybody. White people are enslaving other people who are of color. Um, I mean, <laughs> the whole story of Christopher Columbus is just like enslavement and rape and horrible things. Yet we have a holiday for him and a statue, and <laughs> I, I, I don't. I didn't have a lot of bad feelings on that, honestly. I don't know how to put that in an articulate way. But um. and, but even when you think about the Spanish and the Portuguese and their um, their ventures in, in Africa and even um, one thing that I love to make sure that I express to people and that I'm clear to express to people that slavery, yes, has been around for as long as we can remember. American Negro slavery is different. That's why they called it the peculiar institution. Mm -hmm. It was different. And that's what, when I say context for conversation, when people start saying they were slaves here and -and so-and-so had, again, understand in America, that's where you got the shift in the United States that you were a slave if you were black, okay, not you were enslaved because you were part of a spoils of war because, you know, but, but black made you a slave and therefore less human or not human at all. Right. I mean, black people are counted as three fifths of the population for voting purposes. The world even seen oh. as full people. <laughs> okay, now, and here's here's the part two. This is that whole context one. Like I said, I got to hurry up and get my life right so I can get this class going. <laughs> and is that that was, you can't talk about racism without talking about economics. Right. It's not about black and white. It's about green. <laughs> it's about green. So settlers wanted a permanent labor force because the Indians were running away. The Irish people were running away. Other people can blend. The black skin made it very difficult for them to hide. Okay. Therefore, wow, we don't have to keep getting and bringing in new. We can actually 
identify and keep. So therefore it's going to reduce our costs, our labor cost. And we can enslave them for the rest of their natural born life. And then we could actually pass a law that says, if you're, here's, here's a part people don't miss this. I'm gonna see if y'all catch it. If your mother is a slave, you a slave who gives birth. Right. The mother. I mean, (laughs) so that meant all women who were enslaved, their children automatically. And so you begin to have what they call chattel slavery and they begin to breed like animals, the women and the men, why to now produce a labor force. So when you understand the the economics of it all, and any time, whether you're talking about Black Wall Street, where you're talking about Rosewood, where you're talking about the worst race riot, riots in America that happened in Boston, it was about money. It was about blacks feeling or whites feeling like blacks were going to be a threat and to their economic still, stability. It's still happening now. That's exactly what's driving this right now. Yeah. I loved, um, I was watching The Daily Show of Trevor Noah. and. There was this, I wish I remembered her name right now, but I don't. Um, There was this woman at the end. It was, there was a whole clip of her, but the way she had explained the economic, really, battle between white and black people and how black people don't own anything. So when they're burning down Target, when they're going after the Walmart, they're not going after their own property, even though it's in quote unquote their own neighborhood. It's really white property. And I don't I don't think a lot of people understand that. And a symbol thereof. And so when we talk about symbols and people saying, okay, oh, well, you just erase ancient monument. No, you didn't. So that's why I keep talking about some of the ignorance of it all. I had this woman. Um, I don't know her well. I mean, she's connected to me on Facebook. I didn't delete her, y'all. I wanted to because she, poor baby, didn't know better. She posted this whole big old thing that she got from somebody else. That's what I mean. People keep getting stuff from other people. Uh And it was talking about, I can't believe because of these um, liberals that they've erased Aunt Jemima, who's Uh a part of our (laughs) cult. A minstrel, the woman was paid, and and so now her what? Are you listening to yourself? Are are you listening to yourself? And so people are saying that, and then they're spreading it. So you have one touch point, one touch point, one touch point is worse than the coronavirus because this really is terminal ignorance. Mm-hmm. When people share these things without understanding the bigger part of it. And so you're talking about, if you look at the menstrual shows, if you look at the old figurines, what they represent, the mammy complex, and how black women are subjugated and compared against and have evolved from this stereotype and you wonder why you're struggling in the workplace, career space, in the entrepreneurial space. And yet you want to hold on to ain't Jemima. <laughs> That's a psychology. That's an enslaved mentality. 
So people ask me, how do you begin to effect change? One mindset at a time. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I agree with you completely. Um, I feel like I've seen that same post that you referenced on my own timeline by a relative of mine. Um, <laughs> please it, don't take your, take that cool car and tell them, please, I understand you might be, and I, and I just, I understand that they might say the woman, oh, she died well off and really compared to what? But that doesn't erase <laughs> the racism at play here. Like people really seem to think, oh, she made some money. So like whatever to what led up to that. And no. <laughs> that's the coonery that we talk about and then if you really want to break it down and like i said and of course that'd be like eight thousand shows to do if you look at if you understood through world at world fairs that black women were put on display mm-hmm. and sexualized mm-hmm. okay and again some were paid as freaks of nature, and they were pawned off as freaks of nature. Some were enslaved, they were owned, but as time progressed, they weren't owned, but they were paid, and they did it to survive. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't make this something that we should revere, and that's definitely, well, not, I want my granddaughter going, hey, yeah, I want to be like her. You know, like I said, there's so much in that. And so I kept saying, it's really about your mindset. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, I feel like, not of that exactly, but that sort of reverence of how Black women look and how some other people want to emulate that because you think it makes them cool. Like the white women who want to get lip injections or you know have their butt made bigger because you know looking like a black woman is cool but they don't want to be black (laughs) like I had one of my friends who said something great of like they want our labor and our entertainment they don't want to care about our lives you know right oh that's good a common thread here I mean, I love how there are a lot of NBA players, both in the WNBA and the NBA, who are choosing to sit out the season because there is a lot more work to be done in terms of making sure Black Lives Matter, that all Black Lives Matter, and it's bigger than somebody watching a basketball game. I mean, I understand that there are some people who are sports fans who are, I guess, peeved about not being able to watch, you know, the games they want to watch. But there's a lot more work to be done. <laughs> there are a lot more important things to focus on right now, you know? Yeah. And and I think that we all have to choose where we fit, where we best fit, to be honest with you. And one thing, though, that's just been really heavy on my spirit, and, you know, I know that we covered a gamut mm-hmm. <laughs> of stuff, But to me, the gamut of stuff that we had a chance to talk about really was reflective of what's really been in my head. Like, I feel like Dory from Finding Nemo. And it's like, oh, fish. Oh, octopus. Oh, like it's it's so many different things that I feel like I'm running a race and coming back to, huh? Where am I again? What's my name? 
you know. And for those of you, again, I know Nemo like the back of my hand because Xavier watched it a gazillion times when he was a child. <laughs> but that I call it that Dory complex. There's so much going on that I had to sit myself down and say, okay, get get clear about what role fits best with you in this in this long haul. Because institutionalized racism, systemic racism, our own individual implicit biases were not built in a day or in a moment. And the place that we have to start first is making the unconscious conscious and make the conscious clear about what we're all talking about and, and what we are really trying to dismantle so that we can build. I'm not looking for change. People say, like, oh, I want change. I'm not looking for change. Change is what's kept us here. It's time for a transformation. Not a different way of doing things, but a different way of being because it goes deeper than the surface because you can allow us into the room. That's change. Well, they, they, we desegregated schools. We changed things. They, we now allowed them to come to our schools, but you made the kids sit at the door. You made them, you wouldn't give them any um, tools or, or books. They could not eat in the cafeteria. They could not utilize the, but the change was we allowed them at our school. Right. A different way of being would have said, come on in, have a seat and let me teach you. So like I said, that's a, that's a touch point for me. And I know at some point in time, I'm going to delve deeper in and maybe go back and do my research that I wanted to do when I, before I got my doctorate, I said, I'm going to get my doctorate. And I actually want to look at the impact of desegregation on African-Americans viewpoints about education. Because what many people don't realize is that when schools desegregated, 90% of the black workforce lost their jobs. And they were the anchors in the community. They were Miss Jones who lived two doors down that came and got you because your homework wasn't done and sat with your mama while you did it. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They were the ones who, for income wise, were the ones that you could look up to. The ones that you could go to. Because when you integrated schools, you didn't take them with you. And now you took children who actually had an ecosystem, who had a sense of community with their teacher and their school and that family dynamic. And you put the children in a hostile environment with a group of people who told them they were nothing. Some had that intrinsic I'm a, I got this because they had certain kind of, pain, you know, you, but not all. What do you think it did to the psyche of these children? Right. One of my favorite, if you haven't read this book, everybody read this book, Warriors Don't Cry, the Melba Batillo Beale story. Amazing. Read the, read the book. I read it over and over again. Um, it's a great read about what it's like to have to integrate a school, get your head busted open. Having grown people, white people yelling at you, calling you all kinds of names, your parents losing their jobs because you want to go to school. Psychologically, you don't think it has an impact in residual trauma. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to go all there today. I'm, I, I might do like a special episode on that. <laughs> Okay, back to our regular scheduled discussion. Okay, you know, y'all, that's my those are my buttons when we start talking about the kids and education <laughs> and learning. That's my hot spots. Okay, so 
Um, I'm going to definitely, before we, I want Ash, because Ashley still has so many things to say, but I wanted you to share definitely before we end it, like what's next for you and what do you see is should be a, a good next step for us as a country, as a community? It goes back to what you said of not just letting us in, but really letting us be in high up positions and be a part of the community in the way we were back then. Like I see so many media companies, especially that have these diversity and inclusion committees that are supposed to be devoted to getting black and other people of, you know, color workers in there. And it really ends up doing the same exact thing that you touched upon when you were talking about desegregating schools of you're in there, but they're not promoting you. They're not putting black stories out. They're wanting you to wipe away any sort of misogyny you see in anything when you write a music review or anything like that. Like I feel like black women especially should be able to tell their stories in a full-throated way without it being chipped away at by white people. (laughs) You know, like I don't think that white people or people who are the oppressors have the, um, have the authority to tell black people and those who are oppressed how to talk about it or how to feel about it too. Um, so I think that we should just really make room for everybody's perspectives and listen to them, like really fully listen to them and then work on dismantling the oppressive systems that we came into this country with so we could really fully include each other. Wow. So of course I got to ask, what's your next story? (laughs) Um, I have not found my next story quite yet, but there's so much going on. I, I probably will very soon. Um, I'm still working on that book I told you about. I'm writing about my mom. Yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have anything else on the horizon, but that for now. But I'll keep you posted. <laughs> please, please do. Because it's just, you know, um, you're such an eloquent writer. You have such an amazing storytelling ability. And it's important that our stories are shared. And um, I love the fact that you are sharing your voice. And I love the fact that you courageously have stepped out and said, you know, this is who I am. (laughs) And I don't really give two shakes (laughs) if you like it or not. (laughs) And, and that's very empowering and, and what a great role model for our young girls to have, to really tell their story and share their truth. One of the, um, and I definitely hope that, you'll participate. I'm launching this week. It's a social media movement about our stories and it's called ask me how I know. 
and you fill in the blank. <laughs> and in Ask Me How I Know, it's really sharing our truth because people keep thinking, oh, I pulled that from here, I pulled that from there. And this piece was, or this concept, um, twofold. One, again, for all of you that participate, fine. No shade to you. It's just not my cup of tea. When I see people doing a lot of these challenges or tag 10 people, post a pretty picture of yourself so you can feel beautiful. Okay. Okay. And then what? You know, yeah. when we're still hiding some of our stories and our truths. And so we're digging. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Go ahead, do that. So I got the idea from that. I thought, how many of us aren't telling our stories and sharing our truth about a lot of things that are happening to us? And so I said, what if we begin to encourage our sisters to tell our stories and our truths? And so that's how, ask me how I know. And it doesn't have to be something that's traumatic. It can, it's just your truth. And so as I was reading different stories, and I will say that part of it was inspired about the post that you made in regards to your education and your friends and your school and the first boy you liked, you know, and you were like, I'm not new to this. I'm true to this kind of vibe was coming through your post. Mm -hmm. And that just really solidified it with me. Like, yeah, I'm on the right track. Like, <laughs> because that kind of a post is exactly what I meant. How many of us are hiding behind and it didn't happen to me? No, it's what's your truth. Ask me how I know that, you know, Again, you can go through this and still come out on top and I can tell my story, my truth. <laughs> so yeah, so that's going to be coming out really soon. I'm really excited about that. And I also found a new opportunity to share my voice in multiple ways and platforms and invite more people to share theirs. And I am so honored and I'm so just pleased that you said yes and you came and you shared with us. And I wanted to say, is there any final thoughts you want to share with all of our listeners? Because um, we gave them a lot today. Any final thoughts about where they can start to begin to, I guess, share their story and live their truth? Um, okay, so a couple of things. I would love to participate in your upcoming project. No problem. Um. Just uh, <laughs> don't be ashamed of what you've been through. I mean, I know that sounds really simple, but it's something I've definitely worked on over the years. And it's why I'm able to make posts like that, because I just don't have any shame about it. This is where I've been. This is what I've learned from it. And this is where I am now as, you know, as, re as, a, um, as a result of those lessons. And that's okay. You know, um, it's, it's only a part of your story. It's not the whole book. And there's a lot, there are a lot more pages left. And you have a lot more time to rewrite things. So I would say go forth and do that. Love it. <laughs> well, guys, there you got it. That's what we got for this episode of Walking Through Glass, the Race Class and Sisterhood Edition. Thank you. And until next time, we'll chat with you later. Bye-bye.